We're in our 11th lesson in our studies in Ephesians. We have been getting some extremely excited and positive feedback um, and some bothered and upset people last week that there was nothing posting on Wednesday <laughs> from Ephesians um, that are really enjoying this journey. I think we're tapping into the sort of the core of, of our salvation experience. We talk about grace. We're certainly tapping into the core of it. That, that leads me to um, sort of an opening thought of if we're talking about grace and tonight we, we sort of take the turn with Paul in Ephesians 2 away from specifically talking about grace and more more specifically talking about the, the action of the, the cross. Um, however, you can't talk about the cross without talking about grace. In reality, the cross is the embodiment of the grace of God. It's God taking what we did to Jesus and making something of it. Let me say that better. The crucifixion is what we did. The cross is what God did. And if that sounds like a bunch of mumbo jumbo, what I mean by that is God didn't kill Jesus. Humanity killed Jesus. Jesus stepped into the death that is violent humanity. We are in that system. We are all a product of that system. We crucified Jesus, but God turned it into the cross, the crossroads of all of the universe, that what God did was take our crucifying of the Son and redeem it. That process is part, not the sole part, but part of our salvation. And I think for too often we think of salvation in terms of an experience instead of a life. And I'd like for you to consider shifting the way you think about salvation. I, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. I'm just simply trying to get us on a train of thought that takes salvation away from only the moment when I said a sinner's prayer or at water baptized or I joined a church whatever salvation sounds like. Most people in this room, most people that are following our ministry are from atmospheres of sinner's prayer conversion or come to an altar conversion and, or get baptized conversion. Most of us had a quote-unquote salvation experience. I don't think we should, I'm not saying get rid of that. We should just expand it. Instead of thinking of salvation as the thing I did, think of salvation as the journey I'm on. I'm on the journey of being saved. I'm on the journey of having my mind renewed. I'm on the journey of spiritual healing. You have to admit this is a journey because you haven't arrived yet. You have gaps. You have pains. You have scars. You have hurts. Those are being healed as you behold Christ. At the same time, you haven't achieved everything. You're not everywhere you want to be. I know you are in Christ and Christ is in you, but you're on the journey of salvation. And to do that, we got to move away from simply seeing salvation as go to heaven and miss hell. Because if we don't, salvation is all about what happens after we die instead of what happens when we're alive. And salvation is more than what happens after I die. I didn't say it's not what happens after you die. I say it's more than what happens after you die. And if it's only what happens after you die, then you don't know if you got it right till you die. Well, good luck with that. But you can have more than that. You can come that you could have life, that you could have life more abundant. I want to take you to a lesson I call One New Human, um, and I'm taking this from the English translation of One New Man. Christ has made one new man on the earth, but the New Testament is gender, New and Old Testament gender specific, but not necessarily gender 
in the way we think of gender as in male and female, but rather in the way that the word is presented as a, either a gender neutral or gender male, gender feminine noun. When we talk about man, we talk about humanity. Talk about all of, another word might be mankind. And so when we think of in Christ, God created one new man. I want you to, for purposes of tonight, start to think of one new humanity one new family of man, one new version of mankind. And I want us to try and think of it in creative terms. Here's our text, Ephesians 2. And by creative, I mean literally the act of creation. Ephesians 2, 14, 15, 16. He himself is our peace. You can insert Jesus there. I like to do this. Uh, when you get to the himself, the New Kings likes to put all those capital letters. Jesus himself is our peace, who has made both one. Time out. Remember our context, the verse in front of this from two weeks ago. The verses in front of this is circumcised, uncircumcised. Those of you who are called uncircumcised by those who are the circumcised. What was that? Gentile? Jew? Okay. That's the both, but we're going to expand that. Christ is our peace. He made us both one. He has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law, of commandments contained in ordinances. Keep this word right here in mind. This is a big one tonight. We're going to use abolished quite a bit, and we're going to find that it's a word that gets repeated over and over in the New Testament to say something very specific. And unfortunately, we don't hear enough of this in the church when it comes to our Christianity. We hear, we only think of Jesus came to take away my sin. That's how Jesus is preached. That's how salvation is presented. We get up and say, I want to tell you about Jesus. Jesus came to, and we'll go, take away our sins. We go, it just falls out. Like we've got that automatic. Great. But the greater argument of the New Testament is it's bigger than what I do. It's what he has done and the abolishment in his flesh of the enmity or the separation. And if I say, if my follow-up statement is Jesus come to deliver us from, we go, come deliver us from sin. Um, who is the enemy that Jesus came to destroy? People will go, the devil, right? That's natural. That which separates us from God, the devil. However, the enmity is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So Paul really lays out two big things here. Jesus came to abolish, completely render inoperative something. And we're not just simply talking about sin, and I'm not simply talking about the devil. Jesus came to abolish the law of commandments that was contained in ordinances. This makes this chunk of scripture vital to understand. You want to understand grace, this is understanding it. He doesn't even mention grace, but he's giving a great definition of what it looks like in the finished work of Christ. And he did all of this, and here's our word create, to create in Jesus. I put Jesus in there again. To create in Jesus one new man one new human from those two, and in doing so, making peace. That he might, that Jesus might reconcile or bring back, that he might bring them both to God in one body, whose body? Christ's body, because this whole thing's in Jesus. So that in his body, through the cross, Put to death whatever is the enmity. So we need to identify the enmity. We need to identify the abolishment. 
this great journey leads us not just to Jesus, but it leads us to what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do. Therefore, it leads us to the definition of what happened when we got saved. It leads us to what's happening as we are being saved. And it leads us on prophetically to what will happen in our salvation across time. Not simply when I got saved at 7, 14, 21, 30 years old. But what happens in me as this stuff becomes reality? Because unfortunately, a lot of our theology doesn't go any farther than Jesus delivered me from sin. He forgave me that day I got saved. And then when I went out and sinned again, I had to go back and as if I had started all over again, he had to forgive me again. And so that wasn't the day I, that wasn't the first day I got saved. That was the day I got rededicated or that was the day I got resaved. Cause what was really happening is he forgave me of stuff. Then I sinned again and I had to go back and he had to just keep pulling me forward out of that stuff that, that is sinful and it's exhausting. And that's why people either hear the message of grace and run to it because they're exhausted and they go, Oh, thank God. Or they hear the message of grace and they run from it because it's heretical for you to tell me that that's not the way it is. Because all I've ever known is repent, commit a sin, got to get resaved, don't get resaved, going to die and go to hell. Because what Jesus actually destroyed was sin. And if I'm sinning, then I'm fighting against what Jesus destroyed. Okay. Paul's got a better way. I want to show you how there's one humanity that Jesus has come to do this for. Let's take this as our first thought today. King Jesus. Because when we talk about Jesus as Redeemer, we talk about Jesus as Savior. We don't say a king enough. Kings rule kingdoms. They're over stuff. Let's do that. King Jesus is our peace. But I don't mean simply an invisible spiritual peace because we love to throw that around. Oh, I'm at peace with God. I've got such peace in my soul. And sometimes I don't even think we know what it means. Like we couldn't even really define what that is. We just think it's a real Christian thing to say. You know, I finally got peace. Oh, do you? Describe to me your peace. Tell me where the war ended. Like what was the war that was going on? But now there's a peace period. Well, I want to hear that. And so I don't want us to just think of it up here. It's not just this between the ears piece. He's actually done something. According to Paul's Ephesians 2. He pulled down the dividing walls that turned us into enemies of each other. We can't see Jesus anymore as being on our side. Or we can't see Jesus anymore as being on their side. We're not allowed to talk that way. We're not allowed to think that way. And yet we all think that way. <laughs> and we all talk that way. Whose side is Jesus on? Uh, I'm going to be on the Lord's side. And yet closely associated or attached to all of this other stuff. And then call all of that the Lord's side. Jesus comes to bring peace between people by doing one simple thing. Not making us get along. Not making us agree. Not saying, you're right, you're wrong. You're a little bit right, you're a little bit wrong. Let's come to a consensus. No, but Jesus comes to tear down whatever divides us. And I don't want us to think of that simply in terms of one singular thing. We should think of it in terms of anything and everything that divides us. Because there are a lot of categories we put people into so that we can identify them and so that we can sometimes marginalize them, decide whether or not they are worth our time or whether or not they can be pressed off into another segment. And 
I hope you realize that when we're the ones doing the dividing, we always end up on Jesus' side. You notice that? Like if we are the ones that get to do the dividing, we're always on Jesus' side. That's part of the reason I'm over here, because I'm on Jesus' side. So learning how to tear those walls down are, 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 are essential. So we're going to work on that. Look at this first verse. Go back one more time. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity. Verse 15. That is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create. So here's what he does. Here's what he does it to. Here's why he does it. What does he do? He abolishes the enemy or the enmity, the separator. What is it? It's the commandments contained in ordinances. We'll get to that. But he does it for the sole purpose of creating in himself one humanity. So for Christ, the cross, we crucified him, but the cross becomes the place where Christ, in his own flesh, takes whatever divides us into him so that it cannot legally divide us any longer. So by creating in himself one new human, that what comes out of resurrection then is not just Jesus 2,000 years ago, but all of humanity can come out of that resurrection with Jesus. Let's start with abolish. It's the Greek word katargio. It's a compound word, but in, a, in essence, to reduce all the way down to inactivity. It's to take something that is active and is to pull the brakes on it. That's kata is from a down place. So it's to take that activity and drag it downwards. It's something that was working, but has been Imagine brakes being thrown on it. Or a better illustration in our market economy, to render it unemployed. It had a job, and it got fired. Okay. It was working, then it got fired, now it no longer works. That would be close in the English to Catargio, close to us understanding that word abolished. So Jesus abolishes in his flesh, or renders unemployed in his flesh, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So whatever God wrote down as the law gets rendered unemployed in Christ so that the law can no longer be used as a separator of men. I do this, you do that. We don't do this, you, do, you guys do this. It can no longer be used as a separator of self-righteousness. We have accomplished this. You failed to accomplish this. We're better than you. There's a, there's a, a, a separation in our spiritualism and our religiosity. Jesus puts that in his body. What does he do? He literally renders it unemployed. Let me show you this word across the New Testament. And we're just going to take our time for a minute because one of them has to do with sin, as far as I'm concerned. One has to do with sin. One has to do with the cross. And the other has to do with the devil. So let's start with sin. I'm just doing them in chronological order. Romans 6.6. 6. This is Paul again. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Jesus. Now that's going to take some faith. First of all, because your old man, he's not your dad. It's not that sense. It's going to take you being creative because your old man, you, still sitting here. I mean, you, you met Jesus, but, the, but you, you got right up and went home, right? So it's not as if he gave you some glorified new body and mind 
And how many of you realize that when you quote unquote got saved, and I am, I'm doing quote unquote, because we're talking about a salvation that's progressive, not just singular, but I'm going to use that term. So when you got saved, you didn't get over all your stuff right away. And if somebody told you you were supposed to, they lied to you. And I'm not giving you some shocker there. You figured that out like 35 seconds into your salvation. And you went, wait a minute, if I really got saved, I shouldn't be thinking that. Welcome to the fact that your old man, <laughs> that there's a part of your humanity that is very, you, you still got up with it. However, in a very spiritual sense, in a very faith-filled sense, that old you actually went onto that cross with Jesus so that whatever is guilty in that old man could be crucified in Christ so that it couldn't be held against you, so that it couldn't be used to condemn you, so that you couldn't be put under guilt because of the thoughts of your old man and the actions of your old man. It's in Christ, crucified with Christ, so that the body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We don't see it there, but Catargio's there. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified him, that the body of sin might be catargio, that the body of sin might be rendered unemployed. So when I came into Christ, what he does is render unemployed the old me. The old me isn't getting paid anymore. The old me doesn't have a job anymore. Oh, I still do stupid things. I have a human nature and I, I'm, I'm, I want to see that transformed. And, and our belief is that it, it is being transformed as we behold the image of Christ and we're changed from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit. But I know that my old man is in Christ. The old me is rendered unemployed and therefore I am no longer, I never was, but for purposes of the argument, I am no longer spiritually responsible for saving myself. I actually never was. That's why God came to the cross, but I didn't know that. And so many of us don't know that. And so we, we think that Christianity is the process of saving ourselves. Even when we get saved, we still believe the process of staying saved is our responsibility. I used to say that. This is why I told you a few weeks ago, I do what I do now because I've been the source of some people's abuse. And I used to say to people, you just gave your heart to Christ. Congratulations. Grace has saved you. And it is up to you to stay in Him. And I thought that what I was doing was giving people the seriousness of what it meant to live for Christ. What I was really doing was giving them their first healthy, heaping dosage of condemnation. <laughs> Not healthy, it was poison, but I thought it, was, I thought it was a really good thing to do because that will motivate you to take this thing serious. Because the worst thing you could do is accept Jesus and then not take this serious. What an insult that would be to the to grace of God. And not realizing that there's more to the gospel message than Jesus died to save you from your sins. But had I understood, Ephesians 2, that Christ actually died to abolish any standard of performance whereby I judge myself or determine my righteousness, Jesus came to abolish that. The cross is not just He saved me from my sin. The cross is He saved me from myself. The cross is not just He saved me from my sin. It's He saved me from the need to save myself. And so, rendered unemployed is the body of sin so that I don't have to serve it any longer because I realize it can't boss me around. Now, here's another one, this one about Jesus. Paul says this, Galatians 5, 4. What a verse. You have become estranged from Christ, those of you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. 
Okay, first of all, before we get into the Catargio part of this, you can probably guess where it is. But before we do, um, one of the most misused and abused statements in the secular world in regards to grace is the phrase fall from grace. Notice I didn't say in the Christian world, although I think Christians have copied it. Okay, so let's start with the secular world. The secular world loves to use the phrase fall from grace for any politician, celebrity, athlete, musician, influencer, whatever, who has a major moment in which they are, they lose the respect of the community. They did something, and you can insert 10,000 things they could have done, and they have now fallen from grace. That's a phrase the secular world loves to use, which really, what they're really meaning, I think, is they were in everyone's good graces, right? That's a phrase we like to use. They were in everyone's good graces. They did something stupid. They're no longer in our good graces. What did they do? They fell from grace. The church started using it, I guess because we thought it sounded spiritual, when people would sin, and we go, they fell from grace. But the reality is, is that you don't fall from grace when you sin. You fall into grace when you sin. If it weren't for grace, what would you be? Nothing. So to fall from grace is a very real thing, by the way. It's a very biblical statement. It's just not being used properly. Paul uses it to say, you have actually become unemployed. There's catargio. You have, you have rendered Christ unemployable in your spirit if you try to be justified by the law. That's the very definition of fallen from grace. So what we should say is every time any one of us tries to do this on our own effort. You know what I did today? I fell from grace. Today, I thought that I could get the anointing by paying God off with reading my Bible. Today, I actually tried to get God to bless me financially because I asked him how much money I should give in order for him to help me make more money. Today, I fell from grace and I fell right back into works. I fell right back into my effort, my effort of doing stuff thinking that that would give me whatever it is I need from God. And Paul called that fallen from grace. In fact, Paul said, you actually render Christ unemployed. So if you want to unemploy Jesus in your Christianity, then just go to work trying to improve your Christianity through effort. And you literally stop Jesus from being able to do what Jesus came to the cross to do. And so that's part of this part of this journey. Here's one more. I like to close on this one. I don't mean close tonight. Don't get excited. <laughs> I mean close this little slice that is like the first slice of tonight. And you close this section out with one on the devil from Hebrews 2.14. Just as the children, all of us, have lived or partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus also shared in living by flesh and blood. Jesus shared in being a human so that he could die. This is an interesting phrase. Jesus actually became human so that he could die, so that through his death, he might catargio, the one that had the power of death that is the devil, so that when he died, he rendered the devil unemployed. So Jesus became us so that he could die because you were going to die, so that by dying, he could render the enemy unemployed so that the enemy doesn't have anything to do. This is why I don't believe in the devil. Oh, I believe in the entity or the spirit. I don't have any confidence in him. So people go, do you believe in the devil? I always say no. And the reason I say no is because I don't put any faith in the devil. 
Do I think that there's a devil? Oh, I think there's, I think there's a gazillion devils. I think you'll create your own devil anytime you get the chance. I think the devil has many times been you. I think you're often your own worst enemy. You don't need to look to anybody else but in the mirror and go, guess who's been the devil today? It's been me. I very much know that that is a fact. Do I believe in? No. Why? Because he's been rendered unemployed. I don't have any confidence in the spiritual enemy of the devil. He's rendered unemployed. I'm in Christ. The one who has the power over death has been rendered unemployed. As long as I'm in Christ, death really has no power over us. You go, well, won't we still die? Oh, yes, we will still shed this, what Paul called this tent. This thing's going to go. But it has no power over our soul. No power over our spirit because we are in Christ. So that's Paul's abolishment passage. Let's go back. Back into Ephesians 2. Having abolished in Christ's flesh that enmity, separator. He has rendered it unemployed, right? What is it he's rendered unemployed? That takes us to the next one. It's the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Um, we'll deal with so as to create in a moment because that's the third step. The easiest thing to do with the law is use it as a template for the righteousness of God. It's what gets all of us into trouble. We use the law as a template for what God looks like. So we say God looks like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And what happens is almost by default, God becomes the God of don't. And when you are the God of don't, you are the God of forbidding. Your hand is up. You are putting a stop sign in front of everything fun and good and joyful. And that's what happens to our image of God. And that happens because we, for some reason, believe that a system of moral code is, was God's entire game plan. God went to this whole business of fashioning us out of the dirt and breathing into our lungs so that He could give us ten rules on rocks so that we could live by and die by. And if we failed in them, then He would kill us off. And if we succeeded in them, then He would keep us with Him forever. And such a message is not the gospel. Because not only is it good news, it's extremely shallow. And you wouldn't need the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to come up with it. You just need a God of vengeance and you qualify. We, we all qualify for that. Like, you don't, God is good. John says, God is love. But I could have come up with that. Like, do this and you get rewarded. And don't do this and you get punished. And what happens is as we see law or we see commandments, they become the epitome of what it means to be righteous. And so everyone we keep makes us feel a little better about ourselves. Everyone that we break makes us feel a little worse about ourselves. And the message of Christianity for too many of us became God gave us this really hard law that He knew we couldn't keep and He knew would break us. And so right when we're on the edge of snapping, He decides to become us, come down here and go to the cross and die on our behalf so that for all of our law breaking, then all we'd have to do is go and receive forgiveness from Jesus. And then He would forgive us for our law breaking by showing us what it means to be the perfect man. And then that stays up above us as this template that we can't ever really reach towards, but that's what Christianity is all about, is trying to become that perfect man. I don't think that's good news either. 
Because none of that accounts for evil. None of that accounts for the works of the flesh or the devil or sin. It just has you working really hard and trying. You see, I don't believe that God gave the law so that we would have moral code to be righteous by. The law is just holy and good, but the law can't save you from yourself. It can't save you from your own tendencies and your own lust and your own foolishness and your own lie and your own mistake and your own darkness. You just can't do it. It did, however, provide a template for how we should treat one another. At its core, it was don't cheat with your neighbor's spouse and don't bear false witness against them and don't steal their stuff and don't covet their property. And all of these things were so that you, whether you liked it or not, would at least honor the autonomy of your neighbor so that you didn't have to really love them, though you were supposed to, at least you wouldn't hurt them. So I may not love you, but I'm not going to steal your stuff and I'm not going to lie about you in court and I'm not going to try to take your property away from you and I'm not going to try to take your spouse away from you and I'm not going to murder you. So, hey, there's that. And that would be a better world to live in if I stayed off of your stuff and you stayed off of my stuff. But when we have that law, we then start to take it for righteousness. Paul says that that was Israel's problem in Romans 9. He goes, Israel had the law. They thought it made them righteous. It didn't make them righteous. And it still won't make us righteous. And the biggest problem with it is that it separates us into camps. The haves, the haves, nots, the do's, the don'ts. So Jesus come to render unemployed the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that it no longer had any power to define you. It no longer had any power over you. But that wasn't his end game. His end game was not death. His end game was recreation. I think we can tell the level of revelation that someone is walking in. I'm going to give you a little tip here. I'm not trying to make you judges. Just want you to watch for this. You can tell the revelation that someone is walking in by their passion weekend focus. If their Christianity is all the cross, they're going to live a certain way. If their Christianity is the resurrection, they're going to live another way. And it won't even matter what denomination their church is, what translation of the Bible they are. Because I think what happens a lot of times is that we focus so much on Jesus dying for us that we forget that death was simply the lobby to the resurrection. That what Jesus comes to do is not die. Jesus comes to live. And therefore, Jesus comes... Stay with me here. Jesus comes to copy his dad. God reaches down into the dirt and fashions a man out of clay and leans in and kisses him. I mean, that's, the, that's the, the effect of Genesis. He kisses him. He breathes into his nostrils. He's close enough to kiss him. And when he kisses him, his life goes into man. And man now is above every animal in the field. He has consciousness. He, he's aware of himself and all of the things that come out of that are reflections of the image of God. Humanity fails miserably and falls. Jesus is there at creation. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Word was made flesh. That who was there in creation becomes flesh, fashioned as a baby out of dirt, 
becomes a man, dies, so that he can mirror his father, so that Christ can fashion a new man. So just as God takes dirt, makes a man, breathes into him, Jesus becomes dirt, goes into the grave, comes out of the grave as a new man. And Paul uses a word every Hebrew would have understood, and it's a really odd phrase to use here. He doesn't invent a man. He doesn't reimagine a man. He doesn't slowly transition man from one to... He creates in his own body one new human. And by doing so makes peace between all humanity. He actually recreates. Let's think about that phrase. Don't miss the significance of Paul's creator God, creating something new in himself. It's Jesus creating one new human being out of the two. For Paul's world is Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. But it's representative of something much bigger than Jew and Gentile. It represents any distinction. So if he created them out of two, maybe for us he created them. We had 195 nations on the earth right now. It hasn't always been 100. But for right now, there's about 195 nations on the earth. For our understanding is he created one humanity out of 195 nations. It consists of every tongue, every race, every identity. For God, he doesn't look down. This is why it's an insult to the faith to attach a national flag to Christ or to attach our country to Jesus. He doesn't have a country. He doesn't have a flag. He doesn't have a chosen people on the earth. It's his body that he birthed out one new humanity. And out of, and so yeah, say instead of he did it out of two, say he did it out of 195 nations. Say it's made up of every tribe on the earth, every people on the earth, forming this one new creation in Christ. Let me see Galatians 6.15. Here's the same phrase. In Christ, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised. This is from a couple weeks ago. But what does matter? New creation. When we talk about being new creations, that's part of what we're talking about. It's not all that we're talking about. I'll get to another one in a moment. But it's part of what we're talking about. It doesn't matter physically what has happened, but it's being a new creation. Or in Paul's lingo, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It's being a new creation that matters. The other identities don't matter. This is why it's an insult to the identity of who we are in Christ, to place who we are in Christ alongside anything else. We are in Christ first. We are in Christ foremost. Let's go to 16. Ephesians 2.16, so that he might reconcile. And when you see reconcile, think about buy back, bring back, come back, allow back. That's reconciliation. If you and I are on the outs, and then we get reconciled, we're not on the outs anymore. And we were on the outs, we couldn't be in the same room together. We couldn't talk to each other. But when we get reconciled, then we are allowed to come face to face. We are allowed to have contact. We become friends again. So he can reconcile all of humanity back to, them, to themselves. And then... Reconcile all of humanity to God. How did God do it? In one body, through the cross, and he put to death whatever separates us. So think about this. Prior to this verse, Paul's showing how to have peace with other people. It's in Christ. In this verse, he then shows us how to have peace with God. So Jesus did it all. 
So the cross was not only tearing down distinctions, bringing all boats up. Rising tide raises all boats. That's Calvary going, okay, everybody's equal. But it's taking all of that equality, putting it in one new man in resurrection, and then bringing it back to the Father. So we are not bringing people back to God. Jesus brought people back to God. We are bringing the awareness to people that they've been brought back to God. This is why we don't build the kingdom. We proclaim the kingdom. I know we love the thought of being kingdom builders. We're kingdom proclaimers. Christ builds his kingdom. We proclaim the king is here. The work is finished. He has done the deed. Whatever separates us from one another, here's just one, a one-sentence thought. I'm going to read out verses from here. This is my last little one-sentence thought. Whatever separates us from one another and from God has been killed in Christ. So if there's something separating you from someone else, you're, you're leaning to that which has been rendered unemployed. So there's no separation between us, and there's no separation between us and God. And any separation is simply an illusion. It's not real. And so many of us have been operating under the illusion of separation for so long thinking that something is separating us from God that has not. And that illusion starts in the Garden of Eden, and it gets replayed in all of our lives. That's, that's God asking Adam, who told you you were naked? God goes, hey, Adam, where are you? And Adam goes, I'm hiding in the bushes. And God goes, why are you hiding? And Adam goes, because I was naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? God didn't say, how would you get naked? God knew he was naked. God created him that way. So you don't bring anything to God you don't know about. You don't have anything that God doesn't know about. And if you think it separates you from God, that's, your, that's on you. You're the one hiding in the bushes, not God. God comes to you and goes, hey, where are you? And you go, I'm over here hiding. He goes, why are you hiding? Because I know what I did. And God goes, what? I knew what you did. I still showed up. I mean, I'm here. Let's go. Come out. See me. Reconcile yourself to me. I just showed you I've reconciled myself to you. That's why I'm here. And that's the message of the kingdom we have to proclaim to people. God has already reconciled you to him. God's not ticked off at you. He's waiting on you to reconcile yourself back to him. Let me show you a few of these as we close. Here's, here's one of Paul's masterpiece moments, Colossians 1. By Christ, he reconciled everything to himself. You need to really memorize this right here. Reconcile all things. He reconciled all things things not just a couple things not just people you like <laughs> he reconciled all things to himself whether they're on earth or in heaven whether they're natural or supernatural whether they're visible whether they're invisible whether they're physical whether they're spiritual i know i'm inserting those we need help because we think earth and heaven we think a big blue ball in the solar system or the place we go when we die and that's not what it meant when paul wrote it down so he took care of everything you can see and everything you can't see everything in this realm and everything in that realm all things reconciled to himself made peace through the blood of his cross and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works he has reconciled you who were once enemies, and here's how we've preached this, you've been sinning like crazy, you've made yourself an enemy of God. That is Antichrist message. That would be a message the Antichrist would preach. 
You've been sinning like crazy. You made God your enemy. Because that would be antichrist. Don't overthink Antichrist, by the way. It would simply be that which doesn't sound like Christ, which happens all the time when we open our Bibles and start preaching. Doesn't sound a bit like Christ. Doesn't look a bit like Christ. You were aliens and you were enemies in your mind by the stuff you did because you kept looking at the stuff you do and thinking it separated you from God. And your own mind was killing you. This is why you become the devil. Because you become your enemy. You become your accuser. You become your source of guilt and shame and condemnation. You beat yourself up. You rob your sleep at night. You convince yourself God's mad at you and doesn't want anything to do with you. It all happens up here. You were alienated. You were enemies in your mind by your wicked works, but he has reconciled you. It didn't say he stopped all your wicked works. He said he reconciled you. And when did he do it? The day you got saved. No, he did it in the body of his flesh when he died to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Give me 2 Corinthians 5. Man, this is, this is the money text right here. What's 5.17? What's the verse right in front of this? You got it memorized. Most everybody has it memorized. They just don't, we just don't always know where the chapter and verse is. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. There's that phrase again. Old things pass away, all things become new. Okay, now all things are of God. There's one you could memorize. Now all things are of God. It's all of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now you don't have to use the ministry of reconciliation. You can use the ministry of beat the living snot out of people if you want to. (laughs) And that's what we do. We ignore our ministry, which is to reconcile people, to let them know I don't reconcile people. Let me scratch that. To let them know reconciliation is done. That's my ministry. That's your ministry. You don't get to get around that. Oh, no, God didn't give me that ministry. Bull. He gave everybody that ministry. It's the ministry of the gospel. Reconciling. Hey, let me tell you what Jesus did. Reconciled you back to God. There's nothing holding you back. That's the ministry of reconciliation. That is. What is it? Hey, what's the ministry of reconciliation? That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How did he pull that off? He didn't count their trespasses. So God is inside of Christ at Calvary, not distant from Jesus. In Jesus at Calvary. And the only reason he's not counting the trespasses against us is because he took all of them and he put them in Jesus. (laughs) So that Christ can become... The source of God judging sin and evil in the world, taking care of business at Calvary. And what did he do for us? Okay, now what you guys do is you have the word of reconciliation, so you're an ambassador of Christ, as if God were pleading through us, as if God was crying, please tell people. Please. Stop jick-jacking around with all this other stuff you call Christianity and tell somebody they've been reconciled. Please stop with all the garbage that is all about just building something and do something to tell people that they're not as far away as they think. Paul got it. He goes to Athens. He sees a bunch of statues to the Greek gods, and he has a, pre, a sermon on, the, on the, the street. He has a little street sermon, and he goes, hey, guess what? God's not very far away from you. In him we live and we breathe and we move and we have our being. And every one of them are idol-worshiping Greeks. 
and listen to his sermon again. Hey, let me tell you about the unknown God. He's not very far away. And in him we live and we move and we have our being. And most of us would have said, he's not a very good preacher. (laughs) Because that's not how you're supposed to preach to those idol-worshiping Greeks. You don't want to know why he did that? Because he had a mandate. So do we. We're ambassadors for Christ. It's as if God were pleading through us. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Because of what Christ has done, be reconciled. And that's all we can do. Is say, I beg you today to leave this room and reconcile yourself to God. Take that first step back to Him because He's taken all the steps to you. You're hiding in the bush. He's in the middle of the garden. Hey, Adam, where are you? I'm hiding out. Why are you hiding out? Because I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? I knew you were naked. I made you this way. What are you doing hiding? I'm the answer to your problems. I'm the answer to whatever it is that's bothering you. I'm your answer and you're running from me and that's how we treat God. And we're going to keep treating God that way if we keep presenting God as cold and distant and angry and all he cares about is moralism. He cares about his kids. Which ones are his kids? All of them. How do I know? Because he took all of it at Calvary. He didn't just take the ones he liked, the ones that were good to him, the ones that lived right. He took all of it into himself. And he says, be reconciled to God. And that leads me to the two verses we didn't read that in this segment would close. 17, 18 from Ephesians 2. He came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those of you who were near. This is Jesus did. Because through Jesus, we both, but I want to say we all. Because we've, we've broadened this from Jew, Gentile, and I. We did 195 nations. Through Christ, all of us have access by the Holy Spirit to the Father. Every one of us. Not just the called, not just the preacher, not the holy man. Everybody gets the same Holy Spirit access to the Father. You have that Holy Spirit whether you know it or not. Let me prove it to you. You remember when the younger brother goes out and slops hogs? What brings him back? His dad doesn't chase him down. You know what brings him back? The Holy Spirit is slopping hogs with him. Because he said, the Bible says, he came to himself and said, I believe I'll go home. The truth is, is that you don't really come to yourself. You just finally say yes to the nagging voice of the Holy Spirit that chases you down into a pig pen and goes, if you slap a hog, I'm going to slap a hog. You waste your money on riotous living, I'm going to waste my money. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. I am not going to leave you, and I am not going to forsake you. And I'm going to remind you, you got a dad that loves you, and it's going to make you so mad. And sometimes you're going to get so mad, you're going to incur wrath because you're going to reject this love so much that you're just going to step into wrath. And you're probably going to blame my dad for it. But the reality is, you're probably going to blame me because the reality of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. The God goes, you're probably going to blame me. That's okay. I'm going to keep chasing you anyway with my love. So even when you're in the pig pen, you know how to hear the Holy Spirit. Don't ever let anybody lie to you that you don't have the ability to hear from the Holy Spirit because you haven't been in church. You just go to the prodigal son story. If you couldn't hear from the Holy Spirit, you'd still be slopping hogs. He doesn't leave you anywhere. He reconciled himself to you. He just keeps asking you to reconcile yourself to him. One humanity. 
Beautiful. Let's pray. You are good, Father. You are so good. This has been a wonderful journey tonight of seeing how good you are. I pray that, Father, we have shined such a spotlight on the beauty and the loveliness of Jesus that it, it just permeates the hearts of all of the listeners, that they hear it and they just start to have a revelation of your love. For those of us who have slipped into the pig pen of our own foolishness, maybe it's been blatantly running from you or just something stupid, thank you that you never stop talking to us. For those of us that are like that older brother that it takes dad, the father, coming out to the field to talk to us. I've been that kid too. Thank you that, Father, you still come out to the field to talk to us elder brothers. Thank you that you've reconciled us to yourself. Now I pray that we reconcile ourselves to you, God. Make this ministry of reconciliation serious to us. May this become our impetus this week. Not to fill churches and build kingdoms. But have God beg through us, please. Reconcile yourself to me. Show us how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.